like to continue from where we left off the other evening. It was about, if you recall, the Kalama Sutra. It was about the importance of understanding retreat life as having a daily life. And to, little by little, I hope you'll see the connection between the teachings in this sutra and what we can learn from living here on retreat on and off the cushion. And I gave you a, a glimpse of the sutra, uh, not a very deep one. What it has to do with is listening to the Buddha and listening to yourself. That is, in terms of learning, that was emphasized that observation and the learning that comes out of observation is an exquisite discipline in and of itself. These were <clears throat> some of what we were talking about. And I want to make sure that aspects of the retreat uh, are emphasized because of my own feeling that it's quite important that uh, if we can learn how to pay attention, in a sense, learn how to learn from everything that happens to us on the retreat, yogi job, dressing, undressing, washing, going from here to there, waiting for an interview, waiting for a meal, eating a meal, everything. Or is there's a daily life on a retreat. It isn't that it's just here we we sit and walk, and then we go home with as a daily life. There's only daily life wherever you go. It's just it's all life. And here in a relatively, actually rather safe and protected, very safe and protected place, uh, a unique coming together of people, all of whom are, presumably, we're all rowing in the same direction, encouraging each other, supporting each other, even if we rub each other the wrong way sometimes, even uh, practices to work with that, we have a unique opportunity to learn how to relate to the ordinariness of life, the small things that make up a day. Here, ordinary and small are not used in any derogatory sense. And um, I think... Uh, I also emphasized quite a bit that the sutra, in a sense, is a mandate for the freedom to inquire, to question, to question authority, both outer authority and inner authority. And I believe I left off where I had a big dose of questioning, my upbringing was such, to emphasize that, to the point where I was lopsided in terms of being it was easy for me to be skeptical and to question and to doubt, uh, but to believe or to have some faith, and we'll go into the relationship between the two, was much harder for me to come by and uh, was another form of distortion of, of, in terms of being able to learn from life. My first month in the army was a nightmare. I mean, it is for most people or for many people. But part of why it was is I was so used to being reasoned with and being encouraged to give my own views and opinions, and suddenly I was in a situation 
where they didn't care. I had absolutely no right to my opinion. I couldn't disagree, suggest a better way to do things. Uh, uh, it was just, and it took me a while to understand, oh, I get, I get it. The most important things in my life are over with, at least for two years. And I, of course I learned in order to survive. And what was suggested is uh, the importance of uh, learning how to be sensitive to our own experience, our own direct experience. And I'm going to balance that out quite a bit, I hope, this evening. But let's uh, make sure that some aspects of retreat life are covered uh, because we're here. What you're being encouraged to do is to Take each activity in turn. It's a bit like breathing in and breathing out. That wouldn't be a bad metaphor for what's being suggested. Whatever it is you're doing, to do it wholeheartedly. If you're sitting in the hall, then please do that. And then when the bell rings and it's over, exhale it. It's over. And by exhaling, you're emptying and making space for what's next, whatever the next activity is perhaps walking, perhaps yoga. doesn't really matter. And then when that activity is over, you've given yourself to that, and you surrendered to it, then exhale that in order to make room to inhale what's next. And this simple guideline is meant for, excuse me, for all of life. Taking each thing in turn and giving, and giving it your fullest care and attention, full sensitivity. Um... If you recall, some uh, a mode of learning, and I use some examples from the retreat, and I'd like to go over them. They've, they've come up in the group. Um, how do you know whether to go? We gave you the option after your first interview, which was uh, we would like, which was required, uh, to choose whether to go to an interview group, group discussion or not. And um, we also give you the option to go to sleep at night, or to come back after a hot drink and practice a little bit longer. How do you know whether to do that or not? Well, the most commonly recognized use of the word discipline in, in Dharma settings is to keep with the schedules, a list of do's and don'ts, to be here at a certain time, to leave at a certain time, to honor certain rules and regulations. And it's absolutely essential for us to have to live together. Supposing we just said, uh, "Hey, man, just uh, whenever you feel like it, come in and sit, and sit for as long as you want. And when you've had enough, just ta- you know, just take a- when you feel moved by it. When your heart tells you it's you've had enough, uh, just leave." And everyone did that here. Can you imagine what kind of a retreat it would be? Uh, so not only that. Uh, this form of scheduling, and it, uh, it, it's done in uh, where large groups of people, and also, but individuals internalize it. Many of us get up, and we have a routine that we do in the morning, perhaps. Um, I heard someone a few months ago, and I'm not sure how to take it, he, had, he was talking to people and saying that his son had watched him for 22 years sit for one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening 
without missing a day in 22 years. In one sense, wow, that's quite an accomplishment. In another sense, I wondered about that. I wonder what effect it had on the sun. Uh, to not miss that. I mean, I, I don't know. I think the, remember also the Kalama Sutta is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I think, I don't know the person, so I don't know how that contributed. Is there any flexibility, pliability? Life is such that we can't always keep the schedules. What happens when we can't? How do we, how do we handle that? But that's the most recognized and obvious use of discipline, and it's very useful. It gets you to sit with the mind that doesn't want to sit sometimes. It helps you find out certain things that are unpleasant, that you might avoid more easily. But it's one form, it's one technique, and every form and technique has its strengths and its weaknesses. Uh, what, we, what was being suggested is, that is, take the interviews. We were suggesting uh, put this teaching into practice. Pause. Look into yourself. Remember, the, the, the measure was skill in, skill in action. Whether something is beneficial or not, it, it's skillful if it's beneficial to you and to others. It's harmful if it's not beneficial. Then it's, it's not skillful. Uh, skillful. It's, if it's harmful, if it's not skillful, that means it's harmful to you and to others. And so... It, the practice would be to, to l- listen to your body, to your mind, and out of that decide, well, I think uh, tonight wisdom, learn how to rely on your own wisdom. Wisdom suggests that I can stay up longer, that I don't have to go to sleep. I have energy. Why go to sleep? Or I really don't need an interview today, or I really do. Or I really sh- wisdom is go up and go to sleep. You're exhausted. Nothing much is going to happen. Now, that form of throwing it back to you, for you to decide. Also, we don't say no movement on the cushion. We say keep movement to a minimum. And that when you change to do it knowingly, mindfully, again, you have to make a decision. It would be easier in some ways, as it is done sometimes. No, there's just no movement, period. That's it. You want to practice here? Great. No movement. doesn't matter what you go through in that. And... Simple, like the army. And there's some benefits to it. And there's some weakness to it. And the same with what is being suggested here about, in a sense, learning your way into knowing what's appropriate. Is that that is most easily abused, of course. Because typically, uh, there'll be a very powerful voice in the mind that will convincingly dictate that it is time to go to sleep. When it isn't. And you'll make mistakes. And how can you know if an interview is going to be valuable or not? You can't. But you can, little by little, come to refine your own capacity to know yourself and to know what you need and to learn to trust it. Because most of the time, that's what you're going to need. You can't carry IMS on your back. And so that's a little bit of an of a application to the sutra. Uh, what as that develops as you practice it, the discipline is the ongoing commitment to observation and learning, and then to live what you learn. Often we know exactly what to do, but we don't do it. We betray our understanding. And so then 
uh, wisdom again is brought in. Why is it I know exactly what to do and I don't do it? I know what's beneficial and I know what isn't and then I, I still do what's not beneficial. So then the inquiry, the investigation would go into that. That's interesting. I seem to keep doing things that are not good for me even though it's obvious that they're not. And so um, this learning how to live you could say the Buddha is saying, human race, you don't know how to live. We can call it uh, stress reduction, whatever we want. Uh, it's, it's very, very clear that as a race, we humans really do not know how to live. We certainly don't know how to live with each other. Just look around. And so the teachings is an attempt to give us some guidelines for those who are educable, who are open, to understand that I really have something to learn. I'm not a finished product. And we're willing to be open and try to learn how to live. And there's some guidelines from not only one wise person, but a few thousand years of wise people. And they're giving us some leads, some hints. But this sutra is even saying, don't just follow those hints. Don't just follow a text just because it's ancient, etc. If you recall, we'll go back and forth. I'll reread that part of the sutra again. Um, this kind of discipline is asking of us that we learn how to live, and you learn how you live by observing how you actually live. And what I was suggesting is that this this temporary community that we have together, all of us practicing together, is a wonderful way to learn how to live. And mainly you learn how to live by seeing mistakes. It takes a certain courage sometimes a rather strong stomach, because you see things that are off when you pay attention. You see ways of living that have not been skillful, beneficial, maybe your whole life. And it doesn't matter what age you are. Uh, Can you be fresh enough? Can you take what the Buddha is saying with enough faith and energy, give it the energy, so that you're willing to unlearn to go at it, to unlearn a fear that you've had for as far back as you can remember. And of course it would be easier, we have skillful ways of avoiding it. And in the short run, that's more pleasant. But in the long run, it doesn't work. Um, So the retreat is full of opportunities to see the reactions we have, how we handle situations. Let me take uh, one that comes up in many retreats. Uh, We have something here in the Vipassana culture called a VR, a Vipassana romance, if if you're new. It means that even though we're we're here in silence, remember I mentioned that relationship exists on retreat even in silence. It's not like suddenly you walk in and we agree to be silent, put our eyes down a little bit, that we don't know we're here. We do. We notice what, what, uh, what kind of clothes, we notice certain habits, and as the week unfolds, it becomes the greatest source of distraction. Anything but look into myself, I'm tired of it. From early morning to late at night, here am I again. Okay. So a VR, a Vipassana romance, uh, typically what happens is, um, suddenly you fall in love. 
with someone on the retreat. It's love at first sight. Fascinating. <laughs> Maybe second sight. And you don't even have to declare your love. You don't even have to, where are you from and where did you go to school? And You can skip all of that. <laughs> uh, you can get married, you can have children, and even get divorced on the same retreat. And it's all happening in your head. However, sometimes uh, when people do it, uh, because it's such a, uh, uh, can be such a satisfying distraction from the truth of what's happening, um, we live it out a little bit. Not in any uh, blatant way, but just with the way in which we attend, the way in which we look, the way in which we uh, 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 make it clear that there's someone here who's a little special. And sometimes that's felt by the other person in silence. So it's not as if it's a harmless fantasy. Because sometimes very subtle kinds of indicators are received by the person on the receiving end who just wants to do a simple retreat. And so uh, we hear, well, what is correct action? Why can't I just have my fantasy? It makes me feel good. Yeah, in the short run, terrific. In the long run, what's being accomplished? First of all, it's another way to take your mind off learning about yourself. Perhaps the loneliness that you might feel in a given moment, or the insecurity that you might get, feel in a given moment. Oh good, I'm in love. Every, everything's healed, except that it isn't. Even in real life it isn't, so how could the fantasy do it? I mean, this is real life, but it's uh, mental. Uh, and so, the, the, the sense of the sutta is to reflect, is this skillful action, is it beneficial for myself and for others? You might say, well, it's beneficial for me, maybe in the short run, feels good. But if you look at it carefully, it isn't. It's probably strengthening a way of mind that is done again and again and again, not only here. And that keeps you from dealing with what keeps you from having let's say, a satisfactory relationship, or meeting someone who might be appropriate. I mean, this happens to us, to real people. But also, even though we're here in silence, it could be not beneficial for the other person. So that's just one example. Uh, It's also, I don't want to make it too heavy, it can be a very light thing that people doing it know it, and they have a good laugh at their own expense. Uh, By the way, I don't know if any of them ever work out. I don't know of one that has worked out. Maybe they do, I don't know, but I, I don't know of one. Usually what you hear is by around the third, when, when talking starts. It's the end of the romance. <laughs> the courtship, marriage, gone. Everything. Children, everything's gone. Interesting. Okay. So, applying that, um, Applying the attitude of giving full attention to what you're doing. Let me um, read you something about a tea ceremony, or the, um, the way of tea. It's called Chano-yu, and the Japanese tea ceremony is sometimes called Chano-yu. It's the art of tea ceremony, the way of tea. Uh, I've gotten interested in uh, in tea, uh, just in the last few years, Woods got me started on it, 
And then we found out that Doug's been doing it for years. He was in Taiwan for a few years and is, I wouldn't say a tea master, but, you know, on the edge. He knows a lot about, you know, all these different cups and pouring and, you know. Uh, it's too much for me. I just enjoy the cup of tea. Yeah. But I have read a lot of books on it. And Matthew also is a tea guy. Uh, he learned it in Japan. I learned it in Korea, but I didn't know it was anything special. You know, it was just they would give us green tea uh, before the last sitting of the evening, and it was uh, wild. It was grown there in the mountains, and I didn't have any mystique about it. It was just a cup of tea. Everyone drank it, so I drank it. Years later, I found out we were doing something wonderful and special. So <laughs> in retrospect, I'm, uh, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then I started reading a lot of the, uh, some contemporary tea books, uh, m Japanese, and they usually have beautiful photographs of the tea garden and the tea house, and then endless descriptions of how the garden needs to be laid out, and where this goes and that goes, and where the guests put their this and their that, and their shoes, and if it rains and if it doesn't rain, and snacks and what to eat and what not to eat, and, and the etiquette, and the, this kind of robe, and the host behaves this way, and, the, and it goes on for over 150, 200 pages like that. Uh, <laughs> now and then, it will say that, of course, the main thing is to share a cup of tea in peace and harmony, and that's nice. Um, and then I was wondering, well, what is, why do they call it the way of tea, the Zen of tea? You know, now everything is Zen, right? And it's just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but anyway, here's this quote which gets at what the real tea ceremony is. And I thought it was quite beautiful, and I'm, I'd like to apply it to what we're learning here. This was a verse given to, to Rikyu. Rikyu is considered one of the great tea masters in, in Japan. Um, and it reads as follows. When tea is made with water drawn from the depths of mind, whose bottom is beyond measure, we really have what is called chanoyu, that is, we really have the way. Way is sort of dharma, the dharma of tea. When tea is made with water drawn from the depths of mind, whose bottom is beyond measure, we really have what is called chanoyu. Now that's uh, also the depth of meditation practice. There's no difference. Um, the instructions will change tomorrow, but you already have. You already know where it's going. Uh, we're we're looking at our stuff in order to get to that depth of mind, to that stillness of mind, uh, and to live as to taste, to learn how to live in that stillness and then to live from it in action. It's not simply reserved for special times and places. And so when we say, let's say, uh, you um, put the breakfast out in the morning here or wipe down the counters, uh, to treat that as valuable as coming into the hall, I, I mean it. I really do. And you know, we, uh, questions are asked in the groups about your yogi job. Um, the reason I mean it is that anything can become a way in this sense. It's not so much the activity as what you bring to the activity. It's like Doug's discussion last night of gratitude. Gratitude can be expressed through material goods, 
through the teaching itself, and through all these incredibly subtle ways that were mentioned last night. And so, when we talk about doing your yogi job with that kind of attitude, it's not just to make you happy, cheerful, effective workers. You know, it's not... uh, What I always think of is in the uh, 40s and 50s, you can see them now, they're collections, something, posters from the Soviet Union of the happy peasants working away in the fields, you know, with big smiling faces, the women were all beautiful, the men were robust, they had beautiful, gorgeous peasant outfits, and they would just love their job, they loved their work, and they were singing along, and, uh, and that's what communism was, was just a nation of happy workers. Um, or, let's say, just uh, industrial efficiency, uh, so that workers uh, do a good job. All that's good and to make sure the counter is wiped dry, to make sure that the bell is rung, that the tea is whatever your job is, that the toilet is clean. It all has total dignity, unless you take the dignity away. But the dignity is in you. The activity is just what it is. It has to do with what you bring to it. Uh, now, at first, what it, it's not going to be this. This is, this is real depth. When the, when the tea is, is made, and let's say even tasted from emptiness, when the consciousness is that still. Uh, But that's what I think real tea, the way of tea is. Now, to begin with, no one starts there or can sustain that. And our meditation practices is largely about all the many ways in which we're not free, all the many ways in which the mind is stirred up. Uh, So we start, the, the logic of Vipassana is, we begin from where we are, all the time. So where we are is where we are. And so, although the job at first is just doing the job correctly, knowing what it is and then doing it, can you see how what's being developed is an attitude of wholeheartedness, of bringing it to every... To, of course, the relationship as well. Here you can't speak, so it's very limited. But it's not, nothing's exempt. It's a way of living. So that... It's not to get locked into tea, or, or flower arrangement, or archery, or uh, ballroom dancing, or anything can become fragmented, become a, a special activity, you can become incredibly good at it. But you have to understand, what the Buddha is talking about, and what this sutra is getting at, is the art that's being talked about is the art of living. You can be great at tea, I'm sure of it and follow all those, whatever, have the right outfits and do the poor, everything correctly, and uh, not be able to live your life outside of the tea room. Or it's common to have realms where we're, we, we really are wonderful. And it can, it's not wisdom. In fact, it can often go in exactly the opposite direction. If that's the only place we get any satisfaction, it's so loaded needing to fulfill everything, and can't, and everything else gets neglected. The flying Wallendas, do you ever hear of them? Okay, it's a generational thing, but anyway. <laughs> uh, they were a family troupe, they walked on the high, tight, high wire. And I was watching TV some years ago, and it was somewhere, I think it was in Puerto Rico, it was, yeah. and it was really windy. And the Walenda, the, fl- the flying Walenda, the father, uh, they suggested, don't, don't do your act tonight. The wood you could see, you know, 
and I'm chomping away at my sprout and Munster cheese sandwich. And, you know, and, but he said, no, you know, the show goes on, etc. And you're watching, and there it is, you see this human being, and he goes on the tightrope and he's blown to his death, right there in front of you. I then remembered an interview I read with him, and there's only one line I remember, but it's about what we're talking about here. In the interview, he says, for me, all of life is on the tightrope. Everything else is just waiting. What's your tightrope? Dharma is not restricted to any particular place. It's not here at IMS. This is a marvelous, fantastic place. I love it. It's one of my homes. I've given the best I can here for years. But it isn't it. No place is it. No practice is it. And so what we're trying to convey is that life is it. And that Dharma practice and life can be the same thing. But it, it takes a radical re-education of the Vipassana yogi. It really does. And you have to see it. You have to begin to realize perhaps a certain unsatisfactoriness in the way you're living. And be willing to go into uncharted territory, to take a look, to question certain things, to be willing to unlearn certain things, be willing to learn new things. To me, that's the joy of being alive. And awareness is the key. The awareness and the willingness to learn. Life is teaching 24 hours a day, but no one's signing up for the course. I can't say it's free. It costs you everything if you want to do this. But then again, it's even more costly, costly if you don't want to do it. Because then you're having an incredibly hard time. And you're giving everyone else in your life a hard time, too. Okay, uh, with the time that we have left, I want to go to yoga as an example, because we're doing, this is a retreat that's unique in terms of, of yoga, and apply the kalama to, to, to yoga. There's much more to be said on this sutta. I, I think we may need a, still another talk on I don't know. I'll be personal. I've been doing yoga for 30 years. It's not that I'm, I will never make the cover of Yoga Journal. It's not that. <laughs> First of all, I've eaten too many blueberry muffins. <laughs> then again, if they put me on the cover, it would show that ordinary people can do yoga. Guys with pot bellies are okay. You know, they can do yoga. And you can have your blueberry muffin and be on Yoga Journal as well. Uh, but we know that yoga's hot. Right? It's hot. I think Matthew made that clear in his talk. I'm just going to be really elaborating some things that Matthew already pointed out. Uh, but the emphasis is on what? It's on having a good body. It's on living longer. It's on having a nicely shaped buttocks. It's on, <laughs> it's on uh, having a flat abdomen. Uh, it's on looking younger. It's on having much, much more energy, etc., etc. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with, granted, anyone who's done knows that yoga works. And it does produce more. And it produces all these things. Okay. Uh, if you do it, it does. It's been done for a long, long time, thousands of years. One piece of it has been taken up, and that's the physical aspect. It never was taught that way among the ancients. It was part of a meditative journey, of course. And we're, in a sense, even though it isn't from the Buddha Dharma, 
we're trying to reunite something that never really needed to be separate, uh, some mindful way of working with the body that enables it to, ha- to be able to practice. In many yoga books, they'll talk about yoga as being excellent preparation for sitting, which it at least is. What we're trying to do here is for yoga, hatha yoga, to not only be at least preparation for sitting, helping you. Your body's a little bit more flexible. The breath is a little bit more vivid. Um, there's more energy into the brain. You're more alert, etc. Okay. But if you do it in the same spirit that you're doing everything else that we're talking about, in other words, mindfully, then it's not that it's preparatory for practice. It is practice. How is it different than walking meditation or anything else that was just mentioned, eating meditation? It's just in movement. You just do a forward bend, whatever it is. So it's that attitude. Now, as some of you know, especially those of you who've done lots of yoga, what is being offered here, first of all, it isn't as long as in a yoga studio, nor is it as demanding in many ways, so that you, at the end of it you've been through a real where It's not as challenging for you professional yogis. But that's not its purpose. Now, now I want to bring, bring the two together, Buddha Dharma and Hatha Yoga, and my own experience. Um, my own interest in yoga is accompanied by an interest in diet, herbal medicine, and so forth. That's part of yoga. When I was originally taught yoga, diet was considered easily a, a, an integral part of it. Careful diet, cleansing the body, and so forth. And it took. I really, it's my, my hobby. I enjoy learning about herbs and uh, nutritional things very, very much. And you could say I'm a, at least a health faddist, health nut, any of those words. They apply to me. Do you see the road to wellness, Dr. Kellogg? Okay, if you haven't seen, that's me. Just ask my wife and, you know, uh, they refer to me as Dr. Kellogg sometimes. Okay, I don't want to explain it, just he was a, you know. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and over a period of years, <clears throat> probably, I would say even definitely, I've taken better care of myself than the average person. Because it's been, and I was taught that it is part of practice. It isn't uh, done uh, just for, to look good and all that. But in spite of that, it did help me look better. It did help me have more, all those other things that have made it hot. Some of that happened to me too. And uh, it was not uncommon for me to get compliments like, oh, you don't look that old, you look much younger. And I would you know, say, really? Do you think so? You know. <laughs> Uh, oh, yes, I would never have known, you know. And, uh, and you know, and she, for a person your age, you still have that, you spry and have energy, and you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I would, you know. Kind of <laughs> okay. Um, and so, nice diet, nice yoga, coasting along happily, longevity on the horizon. Go to the dentist. Some of you know this story, but you don't know its relationship to yoga. Go to the dentist, finish up work with the dentist, been in the chair, Novocaine, the whole bit. Get on the the T, that's the public transportation in Boston, 
And there are no seats, so I'm hanging on to the, the, it's not a strap, it's some, you know, whatever. And a young woman, 22, gets up and gives me her seat. So I look around and she, oh, smile, nice smile. You know, like, hey, Grandpa, you know, like. So I sit down. I figure, well, she's getting off at the next stop, and she's just well brought up and polite and all that. She doesn't get off at the next stop. She doesn't get up at the stop after that or the stop, and then I realize she gave me her seat because she perceives me as a certain way. I'm used to being told you don't look that age, and she's saying, you look exactly your age. And the mind went nuts. It was spinning out. Well, the only reason I looked that way to her is because of the dentist. You know, I mean, uh, normally I would be seen for someone who doesn't need to be offered a seat. Someone, I'm the one who offers seats, which I do. I'm happy to offer seats. This time, was, I didn't realize it was a kind of superiority, you know, a gallant and all that. Uh, and so I'm sitting there, and finally, Years of practice, finally I realized what was going on. I looked at it. I looked at it and had a huge laugh at my own expense. And I saw the uh, more yoga can be more vanity, which means more me. More me is more dukkha. Okay. Uh, where does Kalamasutta come into the streetcar with this young, you know, what's he talking about? Okay. If you just... Uh, take the vein, the parts of yoga that contribute to vitality, physical appearance, and so forth, it will work. But you, if you're, and I'm speaking to you as you, not just anyone doing yoga, it's very important not to lose track of your purpose. The reason we're teaching yoga here is in the service of wisdom and liberation. It's nice if you have vitality. No one's against that. No one's against health. So what I learned from that was that I, if you attach to the body, I mean, you hear it over and over and over again, uh, you will suffer. And I really, I didn't suffer as much as many people because of the, the care I took. I suffered, of course, but not too much, relatively. And what I saw was that I wasn't exempt from that lawfulness and that this was not skillful behavior. And that... But fortunately, the practice came in, and I could see the suffering, actually see it. It was something, no one had to teach it to me. Uh, it's different to get wisdom in a book. I've read it thousands of times. It's very different when the suffering is happening to you, and you're right there with it, and you also see the cause. The cause is right in the same place as the suffering itself. And it's the observation and the learning that comes out of it that frees you from that suffering. I'm not saying it ended forever, but uh, it certainly prevented a long period of anything else, suffering about it. So if you have stuff with your body, take a look at it. Find out what that's about. Because the Buddha's teaching, in, in the Buddha Dharma, the emphasis is quite different. It's got a, almost a terror of us being infatuated with the body. Infatuated, there are specific meditations which you get early on in many monasteries. Uh, Infatuation with youth. Well, so what if you are infatuated with youth? We do stupid things when we become infatuated, and they can be unskillful and hurt ourselves and others. 
So there are ways to get you to reflect that you won't be young forever. Infatuation with health. If you have a body, it's inevitable that bodies must go through some problems. That's the nature of things. It's, don't, it's not personal. Everyone who's had a body, and we can't count how many have had bodies already, you know, the cave, everyone has had bodies. They didn't last. So if you're infatuated with longevity, sorry, but you're going to die. Okay. Now, with this yoga piece, one of the things I went through is, what am I knocking myself out, you know, with yoga and special diets, and my friends all go and I join them, and they can eat everything, and I have to, you know, um, I can pick and choose. No, that's not for me. This is for me. Uh, people think you're old anyway. You know, they give, you, they give up their, their, their seat to you anyway. On the, and, uh, and then I, a few years later, teaching with Woods, I got pneumonia from we led a retreat together, and I had a fever, and Woods tried to get me to, I, and I kept going. You know, the captain, you're gonna, uh, uh, the show goes on. And great, the show went on, and they carted me off with pneumonia. And so then I went through some of the same thing. How could I get pneumonia? I'm a yogi. I eat uh, organic food, no GMO, uh, free-ranging chickens, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but I did get pneumonia. So I, I did look my age to someone, and I suffered each time. So is the answer, what am I bothering with yoga? What am I bothering with health? You get sick and old and you die anyway. Just have a good time. Okay. <laughs> hey, I just learned something tonight. <laughs> okay. What I'm trying to say is, of course, that wasn't how it came out. What it came, uh, is it possible? This is a serious Dharma discourse. Okay. Is it possible to take care of the body, to even enjoy doing it, which I do? to enjoy learning about how to care for the body, knowing full well that it isn't yours and it won't last forever. Why does it have to be either you're a health fanatic and you've got to live forever, or you, get, you go to the other extreme, the heck with it, you know. Uh, uh, why can't we care for ourselves for as long as we live, knowing that we have this body, in a sense it's at least to us, or we rent it, uh, and we take good care of it, and we do it knowing full well that we don't have it forever, and we enjoy the process of the care and also the quality of life that usually it helps with very, very much. So uh, try, we're trying to teach yoga in this spirit as, as very much a, a dharma practice, uh, and so that health is good, diet is good, unless you lose your sense of purpose, and it, it takes off and takes over, and uh, you get uh, obsessed with energy and appearance and stuff like that, and it's as if you never uh, heard a word of what the Buddha had to say. Okay, can we have a few moments of silence? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are.
And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.